Well, church family and friends visiting with us today, my name is Tim. It's my joy, my privilege to help us to enjoy the Word of God together as part of our worship. So I'll invite you to take your Bible or whatever you're bringing with you in that way, your phone or your iPad, and let's head for the Gospel of John in the New Testament, chapter 4. John, chapter 4. And if you need a Bible, we can certainly supply you with that. There's a note page in your bulletin. looks like this. Grab that out of your bulletin if you wouldn't mind. And as a last favor to all of us, would you, would you just take a moment and silence that cell phone if that hasn't happened? We'd appreciate that. And church family, I very much uh, doubt that you keep track of such things as this, but I keep track of these kinds of things. This is week 13 of our journey through the amazing gospel of John. 13th morning since we embarked on this study series entitled Jesus Know Him and Believe. We're going to wrap up chapter 4 today. And I know we've set this blistering pace that we can barely keep up with, but <laughs> but that's just how we roll here at IVC, right? We just take our time. However long it takes is what it takes. But uh, here we are going to wrap up chapter 4 today. Now, you may recall, just by way of a little bit of refresher this far into our study series, that, that back in week 1, John told us that he had a very specific goal in mind when he penned this gospel. And it's good from time to time just to touch up against that goal, what it was that drove him as he wrote this book. So toward the very end of the book, he writes in chapter 20 and verse 31, these things I have written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Pretty clear purpose behind what John is doing. This is why I wrote the book, he says, so that you would know that who Jesus is and be compelled to believe in him for everlasting life through faith in him and what he has done. And so right out of the blocks, if you'll recall, John is all about introducing us to the real Jesus. In chapter 1, he instantly took us into the stratosphere, declaring that Jesus was the word. You remember that? He's the word, God in the flesh, in the beginning, before time and the universe, there was Jesus and Jesus is God and he's the word who took on flesh and came to live with us and we saw his glory and, and, and Jesus is like no one else could ever be. God, the embodiment of God in a body. That's how the book begins. Still in chapter 1, we were next introduced to John the Baptist, the most influential person of his time. And the Apostle John calls on him as a witness who pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you remember that morning, John points to Jesus and says he's the Lamb of God. God said he would send a deliverer, and John was the prophetic voice declaring that the deliverer had come. Jesus was here. The Messiah was here. Well, then in chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine, if you remember. His very first miracle, John points to that miracle as proof that Jesus has power over the material world. It's actually more than that, though, because it demonstrates that Jesus has the power to transform things, things like your life and my life, right? He can do that. He can transform our lives. And in the second half of chapter 2, Jesus cleaned out the temple in Jerusalem, remember, he took uh, 
rope and, and he chased the money changers and all those animals and all that out of the, the temple court, showing his authority over the, the broken, lifeless, dead religious systems really of the world. He says, I'm better than all of that and God is holy. Well, then in chapter 3, John calls on Nicodemus, one of the most influential religious leaders of his time. And, and Nicodemus testifies to Jesus' identity, says that he is, is God, he came from God, and he has authority as a teacher. And in that dialogue with Nicodemus, we receive those immortal words from Jesus, John 3:16, best known verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Eternal life. And then John the Baptist is brought back to us again in the latter portion of chapter 3, and, and he declares that it's all about Jesus. Everything here in this world is really about Jesus. In fact, you remember the tribute, timeless tribute? He must increase, I must decrease. And we embraced that declaration and said, we're going to make that kind of the the driving focus for our church family in 2020. He must increase, we must decrease. And if that happens, man, God gets glory and it's great for us as well. Well, two weeks ago then, we stepped into chapter 4 and Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. If you were here That woman declares the omniscience of Jesus. Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. She says that to her village. She takes that message. And the whole town, if you remember, it pours out and, and comes to see Jesus. And as we learned last week, after spending two days with Jesus, the whole town declares in John 4, verse 42, Jesus, you are the what? The Savior of the world. You're the Savior of the world. And by the way, that was, that was the very first cross-cultural missionary outreach that we have recorded in the New Testament. Jesus going to the Samaritans. Well, all of that to say, brothers and sisters, that John is on point with respect to his goal of peeling back the layers to his readers, to us, page by page, chapter by chapter, Come, see Jesus accurately and conclude with confidence. He's God. He's God in the flesh. Put your faith and your trust in him and have eternal life. Make him the Lord and Savior of your life. That's John's goal. Once again, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. Do you have life today? Do you have life in Jesus? Yes, praise God that that is true. If that's not true, don't leave today without talking to somebody about that. Eternity's in view. Well, all of that brings us then today to the end of chapter 4 and to a second miracle that Jesus performs that John chooses to highlight for us. And it's going to reveal something new about the person of Jesus. It's not the second miracle chronologically that Jesus performs because he's performed many other miracles prior to this. But it is the second one that John zeroes in on because it shows something new to us about Jesus. So we pick up the story at verse 43. Follow along in your Bible or off the screen. 
After the two days up in Samaria, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And we'll stop right there. So here's the text. Here's the story for us today. And like any good author, John starts by giving us the setting for this story. In verse 43, Jesus has just spent two days in Samaria and he now intends to head north into Galilee The time in Samaria had been spectacularly successful. It appears that the whole town of Sychar was, was turning to Jesus in genuine faith. He really is the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world, they all declare. And this is a better response by far than anything Jesus has received from among his own people, the Jewish people. Way better. Well, Galilee is where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He's returning now to his own stomping grounds, effectively. And as he prepares to leave for Galilee, he says this in verse 44, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So get this, Jesus intentionally goes where he is less honored than he was in Samaria. He's going again to his own people knowing that they don't understand him and they're not going to believe in him for who he really is. He already knows this before he even goes. And it sounds strange to us, maybe, but it's not strange to Jesus. It's part of the divine plan from the beginning. Jesus intends to offer himself to his own people over and over and again. But overall, the people will not receive him. There will be exceptions, but the bulk of the nation of Israel will not receive Jesus. And this will, as we know, ultimately result in Jesus going to the cross. But this is, in fact, why Jesus came, to die for sinners, right? To die on a cross, to pay the sin debt that we could never pay so that we could have life. His death for our life. So it's all part of the plan, even though he knows that his people aren't going to receive him. So Jesus goes to Galilee, but he expects no honor there. But then verse 45 says this. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans what? They welcomed him. 
They welcomed him. And we read that and we scratch our heads for a moment and say, how can Jesus say a prophet has no honor in his hometown? And then John immediately says, they welcomed him. Something's wrong. Actually, nothing is wrong. The answer is that this welcome is not what it looks like on the surface. In fact, John adds, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, they had gone to the feast, they'd seen Jesus perform a bunch of miracles there. There's a kind of receiving, church family, a kind of receiving of Jesus that has no true honor for who he is in his person. It's just an interest in his miracles. The people are intrigued. They're, they're curious. They're, they're enamored with Jesus' power, his ability to do amazing things that defy explanation. They were all at that, that great annual Passover celebration in Jerusalem just a short time before. They had seen and heard Jesus do some amazing things, apparently many miracles that John chooses not to mention. Jesus is looked at as, as kind of a magician who baffles and confounds and you try to figure him out and, and you say to yourself, now how did he do that? But there's not a willingness amongst Jesus, the Jewish people to believe that Jesus really is from God. He can do these amazing things, but, but we don't know how he does that. But, but he's not from God, even less is he God himself, the promised Messiah? Well, John then mentions that Jesus comes to Cana in verse 46, reminding us that this is the place that he had done his very first miracle, turning the water into wine. Now, Cana is about 10 miles north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up, and it's about 16 miles west of Capernaum, which sits on the shore of Lake Galilee. And at the end of 46, John says this. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. John's going to take us now into a new moment. Now, we know nothing more about this man than what we get here. He's a dad. His son is very, very sick. And he's a government official. In fact, the word official here literally is the words royal one. He's connected to the king in some way. The king over Galilee in this moment is Herod Antipas, and he is one wicked dude. This guy has a really dark story. Among other things, he marries his brother's wife, and he'll end up being the one who kills John the Baptist, right? Has him beheaded. And so this official works for him in some way. Capernaum was easily the most prominent city in the region, designated a Roman provincial town. It has a military garrison posted there. And this man held an influential position representing the king in Capernaum. So we can rightly presume then that he's probably quite well off. He's probably a wealthy guy. He's well respected. You're going to do what he says. And he's used to getting what he wants. That's this guy. But now he encounters something that neither his position nor his influence or his money can do anything about. Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. 
a desperate need drives this man to Jesus, drives him to leave Capernaum and make a a five-plus-hour trek up into the hill country where Cana is located, desperation drives this guy. His son's life hangs by a thread, and he's got nothing in himself for this moment in his life. Desperate need. It's just part of life in a fallen world, isn't it? Desperate need. I remember getting a call one day from a couple, they were grandparents actually, who had assumed custody of their little two-year-old grandson because the dad was nowhere to be found and the mother was not capable of caring for this little boy. The couple was calling me from Loma Linda Hospital. The little boy had fallen down a flight of stairs in their home that morning and was in ICU, life-threatening head trauma. I get there about noon, and for the next 12 hours, I was with this couple in the waiting room as doctors did everything that they could. And we prayed, and we wept, and we prayed, and we waited. About 10 p.m., the attending physician came and said the little boy was brain dead. He was on life support, but he was brain dead. And then the doctor very gently steered the conversation away from prognosis of recovery to talking about organ donation. And then the three of us with the doctor stood by the bedside of this little boy at midnight as the machines were turned off and the monitors went silent. Life is filled with pain, with uncertainty, with heartache, with moments of desperate need. Now, happily I can tell you one day that will no longer be true, right? That will no longer be true when King Jesus comes back and he makes all things new. As Wayne reminded us of that out of the book of Revelation earlier in his moment of of sharing with us. But till then, church family, avoidance of desperate moments is utterly impossible. We live in a fallen world. And this father faced a desperate crisis. His son was on life support. He leaves his bedside and he goes himself. Now that's interesting because this guy's used to sending people to do his, his, his work for him. He just sends them and that's, they do it. But not this time. He goes himself to Jesus, which is exactly how it has to be. Jesus wants to deal with us personally, doesn't he? He doesn't want to deal with us by proxy or by, by intermediary. He wants to deal with us. And so this man goes. He goes to Jesus. 16-mile journey. If you flip your note page over, this dad then asks Jesus, one translation says begs Jesus to go with him back to Capernaum and do this healing miracle for his son. What Jesus says next, 
I'm guessing, catches most of us off guard when we read it. Verse 48, the dad asks, come with me. And Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, we read that and it sounds on the surface like a cold, uncompassionate rebuke, doesn't it, of this guy? But if we were all able to read Greek, New Testament Greek, we would instantly know when we read this verse that the word you here appears in the plural two times. It's plural. It's not singular. In other words, Jesus is talking to everyone gathered around him because apparently a crowd has converged on this scene and he's really talking to the entire region where he grew up. You, plural. John having set the stage for us earlier in that way. You are sign seekers, plural. You are wonder worshipers, plural. You say you believe in me, But your belief is not real belief that honors me. You believe I can do amazing, natural, law-suspending things, but you don't don't take that to to the place you need to take it, which is, why can I do these things? Why can I do them? It's because I've been sent from God. And more than that, it's because I am God. But you won't go there. You just want to see the tricks. You don't want to believe in me. And that's really what Jesus is saying. And he's not saying it to this this guy. He's saying it to the region. Well, now what about this desperate official? Do we lump him in with the, the crowd who believe but don't really believe? Believe as a sign seeker but nothing more? My answer to that is I don't think so. Verse 49. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. In other words, he doesn't even comment on what Jesus just said. He simply repeats his request. Desperation does that, doesn't it? I mean, it gives us tunnel vision. It closes almost everything out because we're so focused in on that thing. Sir, please come down before my child dies. You can just hear the anguish. In his voice. Now, neither Jesus nor John gives us any additional insight into this man's thoughts or his convictions. But that's really not what's important in this moment. What was important was that Jesus gives him what he wants, what he asks for, not because he merits it, not because he deserves it, but simply because Jesus wants to do it. And we call that grace, don't we? We call that loving grace, undeserved kindness. This guy brought nothing to the table. He works for the king who's going to kill John the Baptist. He brings nothing to the table, and Jesus says, I'm going to do this. That's pure grace. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, here's real faith. Here's real faith. Go, your son will live. This man appears to have obeyed without question. He didn't insist on seeing a miracle. He didn't complain that Jesus wouldn't come with him. And amazingly, he simply left, John says, believing 
that what Jesus said is the way it would turn out. That's real faith. That's real faith. Now, earlier we had noted that twice he had said, come with me. Come to Capernaum. He had in his mind what needed to be done for his son to be made better. Jesus needs to come to Capernaum. You'll need to come with me now. We don't have a minute to spare. Now, Capernaum, you, me, Jesus, let's go. Right? That's this dad. He's got it figured out. Now, I'll ask you, have you ever done that with God? Have you ever done that with him? You ever told God in your prayers how he should do it? And and when he should do it? And you need to come. You need to get on with the program with me. We've got to do this together right now, you and me. Have you ever done that? We've all done that. We've all done that. You're in Cana, Jesus, but my son's in Capernaum. We need to leave now so you can get to him, stand by his bedside, and do your thing. We've all done that. Looks a little different, but we've all done it. However, church family, something changes for this man as he encounters Jesus. Something in the authority that Jesus projects, the tone of voice he uses when he says, go, your son will live. Something changes in him. And we're not told what that is, but suddenly the need for Jesus to come back to Capernaum is no longer important. And does this not take us back up to verse 48 in the words that Jesus said? Unless you, what? See signs and wonders, you will not believe. This man is not part of that. He's not part of that crowd that Jesus is rebuking. He has no clue what's happening in Capernaum in this moment. He has no idea if his son is still alive. Things were just that desperate. But Jesus said, go, he lives. And that was all this man needs. Real faith believes even when it can't see. That's real faith. In fact, it's not faith if you can see it, right? It's not faith. Hebrews 11.1 frames it this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things what? Not seen. Things not seen. Real faith says, I don't know what's going to happen But I do know God. I know what he is like. I know he loves me, that he is infinitely powerful and all-knowing, and I am going to trust him for the timing and for the outcome of this situation that is so desperate in my life because I know him. I trust him. Go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Now, apparently back home, this man's servants were so excited about the son's recovery that they're not going to hang around and wait for him to get back to Capernaum. They're going to go meet him. Death was a virtual certainty, and now it has vanished, and they go. It's pretty cool. Verse 52. So he asked them, the hour when he began, the little boy began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. 
The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Now, the Jewish way of time reckoning was to have the day start at what for us would be 6 a.m. So the seventh hour is one o'clock in the afternoon. The man heads out as Jesus instructs him, but either night falls before he gets to Capernaum or something else has delayed him, we're not told. And so it's the next day when he encounters the servants coming from his, his town. And they tell the master that the, the fever broke at 1 p.m. the day before. And that's very specific. They knew that something wonderful had happened at that very hour. And this dad knew that what had happened was because of Jesus. Go home. Your son will be all right. And then at the end of verse 53, and he himself believed and what? All his household. The faith of this dad is confirmed, it's affirmed, it's validated, and then his faith spreads, doesn't it? His faith spreads. It takes on, kind of takes on a life of its own. It's kind of like a, a holy virus that infects his entire household, family and servants alike. It's not just the little boy. It's not just the dad. Man, it's everybody. Physical life preserved that day? You better believe it. The little boy was on the verge of death, but now he's, he's alive. But spiritual life was born that day in that family. Everyone is saying, boy, the evidence is so compelling, so undeniable. I want to commit to this Jesus guy too. He has to be more than a magician who can do tricks with sleight of hand or illusion. Cana is 16 miles for Capernaum. And so he's got power. <laughs> he's got power. I want to follow that guy. I believe in that guy. Such a special story, church. Revealing still more of Jesus' true identity to us. So John is on point with his purpose that we would know Jesus and believe in him. So now before we would meet uh, around the communion table and remember Jesus' death for us, sacred moment, on your note page you'll notice that I've added at the end there just a few quick thoughts of practical application we, we won't linger long here, but we don't want to miss some of the gems and, the, and challenges that, that lie within the folds of these verses. So number one, allow pressing need and those desperate moments. By the way, they're moments that you would never choose for yourself. Allow those to drive you to Jesus and not away from him. Desperation drove a dad to the only one who could really help him. You know, kind of life kind of works like this, church family. And you can correct me after service if you think I'm wrong, but I think life kind of works like this. We are either going into a tough season or we are in a tough season or we are coming out of a tough season. That's just how life works, doesn't it? In a fallen world, that's how it works. In fact, behind every face in this room, every face in this room, my face included, behind all of our faces, there are stories of joy, but also of sorrow. Stories of blessing, but also of loss. Stories of pleasure and stories of great pain behind every face 
in this room. Let's not blame God for the desperate times and turn our backs on him, which is so common. You know people who are doing that right now, blaming God, saying, how dare God let this happen to me? I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to worship him. It's all his fault, right? You know people like that, and I do too. No, man, our world is a broken world. It's messy. It's dying. It's, it's brokenness splatters on everything, including us. So let's let the hard times drive us to God, to Jesus, like it drove this father to Jesus. No one else has the power to deliver, right? No one else has the power to enable us to endure, right? Let's go to Jesus. Number two, trials and troubles and pain are faith's proving ground. A number of years ago, I came across a little piece written by Charles Spurgeon. Do you know his name? Charles Spurgeon, he's a name you should know. Probably the greatest preacher of the 1800s, and I I keep this little piece close at hand, and I pull it out when it gets hard for me. It goes like this. Faith untried may be true faith, but it is sure to be a little faith. And it is likely to remain dwarfish so long as it is without trials. Faith never prospers so well as when all things are against her. Tempests are her trainers and lightnings are her illuminators. When a calm reigns on the sea, spread the sails as you will. The ship moves not to its harbor, for on a slumbering ocean the keel sleeps too. Let the winds rush, howling forth. Let the waters lift up themselves. Then, though the vessel may rock and her deck may be washed with waves and her mast may creak under the pressure of the full and swelling sail, it is then that she makes headway toward her desired haven. No flowers wear so lovely a blue as those which grow at the foot of the frozen glacier. No stars gleam so brightly as those which glisten in the frigid polar skies. No water tastes so sweet as that which springs amid the desert sand. And no faith is so precious as that which lives in triumphs in adversity. What was Spurgeon saying? He's saying trials and troubles and pain are faith's proving ground, right? That's where you prove the quality of faith. Welcome those moments, embrace them, and thank God for them because they're part of him strengthening your faith, my faith. Number three, trust God. What's the next word? Before you see the results. Now, that's what Jesus asked this dad to do, right? Believe without seeing. Now, our culture is all about seeing and then believing, right? And then I'm not even sure if I want to believe. That's not God. That's not God. Believe and then see. The Old Testament figure Job comes to my mind. His very name is synonymous with suffering. Uh, he's in the midst of the most desperate time in his life, and yet he will say this, Job 13, 15, Though God slay me, yet will I hope in him. What is that? That's believing without seeing. The dad says, 
I'm going to go back to Capernaum because Jesus said to go. My son will live. I'm going back. That's believing without seeing. That's real faith. And that's what the Lord would ask of us, brothers and sisters, in life's desperate moments, especially when those moments are not going at all the way that we think they should be going. I'm currently reading a book on suffering by Tim Keller that was suggested to me by a friend. And just this past week, just a couple of days ago, I came upon a couple of lines that just stopped me in my tracks. And and I wrote them down on a little post-it note. And I, I have them on my desk where I will not miss them. Here's what I read. A little prayer. Heavenly Father, you give me everything I would ask for if I could know all things as you know them. Man, that is really good. Heavenly Father, you give me everything I would ask for myself if I could know all the things that you know about them. But I don't, so I will trust you in my good times and especially in my hard times. In other words, if I could see how it all fits together as God sees how it all fits together, I'd ask for the very things that he's bringing into my life, even when they hurt like crazy. Trust before we see the results. Number four, God's power is never bound by time or space or distance. God is bigger than any obstacle. Do you believe it? Any obstacle? Any is a pretty big word. It's three letters long, but it's really big. This Capernaum dad thought Jesus needed to accompany him back to Capernaum or Jesus couldn't do anything. I mean, that's how he started out. Come back with me. He pleads for that twice. His boy's dying of a runaway fever. You got to come. But the power of Jesus is seen in this moment in that time and space and distance are nothing to an omnipotent God. Jesus doesn't even say anything in this moment about this little boy, does he? He doesn't say, child be healed. He doesn't say, little boy rise. He doesn't say a word. He just says, dad, get back to Capernaum. He's going to live. He's going to live. He doesn't say a word. And yet that little boy's biology, his chemistry, his physiology is changed instantly. He was 16 miles away and Jesus does this. That little boy could have been 16,000 miles away. He could have been 16 million miles away. Would it have made any difference? No, no difference at all. Go, your son will live. That's all you need to know. John wants us to get that. Jesus is not limited by anything, certainly not distance. And then last there, number five, our faith or our lack of it can powerfully impact other people. Do you believe that? Church family, the desperate, devastating, crushing moments in our lives and the living out of our faith in God in those moments before our families and before our friends is not without effect. We need to remember that our faith impacts other people. 
or our lack of it because people are watching all the time. They're always watching, especially if you claim to be a a God follower. (laughs) They're watching you. John makes sure that we don't miss that. He draws our attention to it. The little boy was healed at 1 p.m. The dad leaves as instructed, not knowing what's going to happen. He encounters his servants the next day. When did my son recover? 1 p.m. yesterday. Praise be to God. The man, Jesus, did it. And verse 53, and he himself believed and all his household. Faith impacts. And just think about this, church family. One day, this is really cool. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you told me a moment ago that you you do, you're going to meet this Capernaum dad one day. You're going to meet him in heaven. And you're going to meet his little boy whom Jesus healed from a distance away. And not only that, you're going to meet his servants and you're going to meet the rest of his family, his wife and his other kids and maybe other relatives. Who knows? They're all going to be there in heaven. You're going to meet them one day. But here's the thing. None of that would be true had not desperation driven this dad to Jesus. It took that for him to have life forever. Do you think he's thanking God for the crisis time? You better believe it. He's in heaven because he was driven to Jesus by desperation. When those times come to us, brothers and sisters, may... They drive us deeper into Jesus, trusting him and his limitless power to work the perfect eternal outcome. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, what a joy. What a joy. You take us into a special place, a place that we can all relate to because we all live in this fallen world and we all know desperate moments. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for these practical lessons given to us today what a gift may we be hearers and doers of the truths herein jesus you are great and greatly to be praised may our faith never waver and lord now it is it is truly an honor lord jesus to gather at the table with friends and family and to remember the gift of life that you've given to us at the cross The whole reason you came into this world was so that you could go to the cross and pay a sin debt that you didn't know, but that we owed. You came to die for us so that we could have life in you. We get to remember that. You commanded us to remember that through the bread and through the cup. Your body symbolized your blood, symbolized here in these moments. As we come to this table, may we do so with the right kind of heart. Super, super grateful that your grace was poured out on us because you wanted to give us grace. You loved us to yourself. We want to remember what it costs for us to have life in you. It's a sacred moment. Be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The ushers would come forward and serve you. We'll ask you to, as you are served, hold on to the bread and the cup, and then we'll all partake together but as you receive the bread and the cup then in the moment of quiet that you have remaining 
go ahead and, and just talk to your Heavenly Father. If there's sin that needs to be confessed, confess it. And then we'll partake, as I said, together.